We're in the sixth chapter of the book of John, and uh, excited to get into the Word with you this morning. As always, if you're just now joining us online, we appreciate you doing that as well. And uh, would ask you just to grab your Bible and look at John 6, 2. We'll be uh, walking through that this morning. There's a million little side eddies that we could uh, get caught up in as we uh, progress through this book of John. Um, in those original uh, messages as I introduced this book to you, I talked about some of the themes that you could read through the book and, and examine it based upon those themes. But I, I, I wanted us to try to stay true to what John said that he was writing the book for as the major theme that we would hold before us as we walk through the book this time. And uh, let all the other stuff feed into that. The I am statements, the signs, whatever it is. Let it all feed into his objective. And so if you start with that in John 20, 30, let me remind you again. He said, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's crucial. That's what he's doing. That's the picture he's presenting. He wants us to have life in his name. He wants us to get it right. Who Jesus is as the Christ, the son of God. Put our faith then in Jesus and not some pseudo Jesus that we've created. But letting him be the son of God that he is and really understanding that. This is the objective that John has. Moving us to this, to this place where we can have faith and life. John records these particular signs or miracles from a bunch of them. And so we have to ask ourselves why he's recording the ones that he did. In 2125 of John, he says this, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that not even the world itself could contain the books that were written. You know, what do you think when you read a passage like that? I just think it must have been really something to have walked with Jesus for three years. I can't even wrap my mind around it. This is all we have. And he says we couldn't write enough books to fill it up. But I'm going to give you a few signs. Why did he pick those out? There had to be some real significance to him choosing the ones he chose. And so... We need to be asking that question. Why did he choose these? And sometimes the explanation that he gives afterwards is so appropriate to his theme that you understand why it is that he gave us the ones that he did. There is a bigger picture that John wanted us to see. That we might believe that Jesus is the Christ and by believing we might have life in his name. There was a lot of thought went into this. A lot of guidance that I think he received from the Holy Spirit. This is not just uh, a random recounting of old fishing stories from the good old days. Okay. He was very articulate in what he put down here. And so I want us to pick through this to try to catch a clue of what he presents the Christ to be and who he presents him to be. So that we could live. Because that's what he wants. 
And it sounds so simple. And we think that we, because we're on this side of the cross, have it all. And yet we have so many misconceived ideas sometimes about Jesus and who he is. And we're shoving him into a mold, trying to make him into something that he's not. And folks, it destroys faith. And I want us to see that this morning. So thus far, what are these signs that he's given us? Well, the first one was the turning of the water into wine. And he tells us there that this revealed his glory to his disciples and the servants. We know that the ones who obeyed, who filled the pots with water and who took them to the head waiter. We know they knew what went on. We know that the disciples saw what went on. And it says in the text there that this was to show them his glory and to increase their faith. Increase their faith. Today's passage is going to be a testing of that faith, I feel like, as you bring that concept and what they should have picked up there about Jesus forward. He's retesting that again in this moment historically again that historically they should have gotten so put it in uh, the the sphere of time and space you should pick up something right here now i'm giving you another opportunity to see if you've picked it up here so that you can live it and apply it and he'll probably do that again down the line you know why would jesus do that that's ridiculous his disciples obviously got it all on the first time and they need no more review. Let's just move on, right? Okay, you with me? And so where is faith? Well, faith usually starts out about like this, doesn't it? And then it has to grow. And so he has an experience. There's something he interprets for him. I turn the water into wine. You see something of the glory of God here, his majesty, his marvelousness, his incredibleness, Okay. You see something supernatural that's going on. Second sign is the healing of the royal officer's son. Here we begin to see the problem with the sign's faith. Uh, 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 it fails to stimulate the right kind of faith if, it's, if we're just following for the signs. And he begins to unfold the dangers of this sign faith. This sign's kind of faith. And in today's passage, Jesus might will be testing his very disciples as well as all of them there to see if they'd gotten past that at this point, to see if they themselves, his disciples, were not falling into this trap of a sign's faith. Keep in mind, I just anytime I think about signs, I think about two passages of Scripture, Revelations 13, 13, Matthew 24, 24. Both of them tell us that at the end of the age, signs are going to do exactly the opposite of what they we perceive of them doing and they're going to lead people astray they're going to turn people away from jesus instead of toward him so be careful with signs signs are they're wonderful they're marvelous they were a testimony i mean they were a part of the work that jesus did but they are easily easily something that leads us to a place we don't want to go and we'll talk about that a little more today too because he's going to bring that in in the very conclusion, because there are people who are still hung in a sign's faith, and at the end, you're going to see a wrong response on their part. These are not new concepts. John is developing them through the book. He's trying to ha hang in there on these ideas until we understand what faith is, what believing is, who Jesus is, so that we might live. He doesn't want us to miss life, age life, eternal life. 
the life that God wants to restore to us that was lost in the garden. The third sign, the healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. Here, we have this marvelous encounter of, uh, of Jesus with those, those Jewish people about that Sabbath law and the keeping of it and how they uh, had categorized Jesus in a, in a place that was not who he was at all because they saw him breaking their religious rules. And it's just not the way God would work because he's breaking my religious concepts of what uh, being a son of God would be or even a religious leader or a holy person for that matter would be. And he, boy, the teaching that comes out of that, we found out that God is working all the time. The sovereign of the universe never quits. He holds it together. And if he didn't, it would implode or explode. And if he's working all the time, if I join him in that work, that can never be wrong. And Jesus said, I just joined him on what he was doing on the Sabbath. And then that leads to, to questions about how do you know what the father's doing on the Sabbath? And he begins to talk to him about how he's in harmony with the father and he never acts in, acts in any way independent that is independent of the father's will. And that he understands that always in perfection because he's the son of God. He has insight. He has understanding. He has knowledge into God's will for his life. And, and then... It, it, if that's not enough, he kind of takes the argument a little further and he says to him in that moment, and God has the ability and the power to raise the dead. You know, he said, well, we all know that. Well, they were still arguing about it in Jesus' day. The Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't agree. And he says, look, it's here. He has the power to give life. And guess what? He's given this power to the son. Oh, and if you're talking about power that he's given me, the son, he's also given the son the power to judge. And he did that so that all would honor the son just as they do the father. And in fact, if you're not honoring the son, you're not honoring the father. Oh, oh and by the way, that, that, uh, that uh, judgment at the end that's mine, I'm going to call you to that judgment. That voice you're going to hear that's going to bring you out of the grave is going to be mine. Yeah, the one you're listening to right here today. The one that's speaking to you, me, Jesus, right here, that's the one. He's asking them to believe some amazing things. He's defining who he is. He's defining his relationship with God. These people had a wrong idea of who the Messiah was. And he's going to hammer this and develop this and, and, and just bring this to a place where hopefully we will get a clue and not miss it. He gave them three witnesses after that. He gave them John the Baptist. He gave them scripture and he gave, the, gave them the example of the work that his father had done. And he said, look, set yourself in a place as a jury. I've got three witnesses. And on three witnesses, you can make a conviction. On three witnesses, you can work. This looks like people you might know, Jeff. Come on down. There's an ugly fellow right down here at the front that would love to have you sit by him. Okay. <laughs> welcome, welcome. So, so Jesus is, or so John is putting together this picture that he doesn't want us to miss. Are you, the young man's going to be baptized second service? Yes. Awesome. All right. We look forward to that. Awesome. Okay. So that, all of that just brings us up to today. 
And John's just adding to what he wants us to get about Jesus. Wants us to get a clue so that we'll have life and so that we don't miss it. Okay. At the end of John's discussion in chapter 5. Again, all of this is for a reason. He put it together. It's, it's, he's put some thought into this. And the Holy Spirit is obviously guiding in a big way. He ends this by in, uh, in chapter 5 here by speaking about Moses. He says, do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses on whom you set your hopes. So there's, there's something going on here. You know, we're children of Abraham. We've got Moses. We've got the prophets, right? If you believe Moses, he said, you would have believed me. For he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? The Jews' expectation of a Messiah. We understand he was looking, they were looking for this, really a person like Moses. Maybe even more than they were looking for a king like David. They were looking for a deliverer like Moses. One who would be of the same kind of style and nature, a prophet like Moses. And Moses also had that priestly side to him as well. Not only did he bring God's word to the people, but he stood on behalf of the people many times before God, didn't he? And so there is a picture here of our Lord. He brings the word of God right down to us. But he also stands in the gap between us and God. He restores that right relationship that we lost with God. So he is a prophet, he's a priest, and he is a king as well. So you can grab David and scoop him in there. Now, if these are the Old Testament concepts that you have, and you're looking for it, and you're bringing it forward, what kind of a Messiah are you really looking for? You're looking for something along the lines of a mixture of a David and a Moses, right? And if you look at this, one of the things that they would do whether it's really an accurate prediction of things or not, they had ideas about certain things. Moses had given them a whole lot of signs. He had, he had done a whole lot of miracles, and they were looking for this Messiah to be the same way. Moses gave them manna in the wilderness. He gave them water out of a rock, right? They were even looking for, and manna stopped the minute they entered the promised land, and, and they were even looking for when the Messiah came, a return of the manna starting again. Again, where God would pour out that kind of providential blessing upon the people. Now, if you kind of put that in your brain then and you jump into this passage, the explanation that we're going to look at next week as we talk about Jesus being the bread of life, can you see how this all is going to fit together? How John is setting up where he's going to go with this? Yeah, you're looking for the manna. It's coming. But it's not what you expected. He's trying to get them to make this quantum leap to understand who Jesus is. Because if you don't get this right, you don't, you don't know Jesus. You're not worshiping him as he is. You've got a wrong idea and your wrong idea will lead you to a place where you have wrong faith. And you're going to miss life. So let's jump in. What does it say? It says this. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far side of the shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs that he had performed on the sick. And then Jesus went up on the mountainside and he sat down with his disciples. 
The Jewish Passover was near. How near, I don't know. Broadman Bible Commentary, though, said this about it. He said, perhaps this is foreshadowing. Because where would these Passover feast patrons have been going? To Jerusalem, right? To celebrate the Passover. But now instead of going to Jerusalem, celebrating the old Passover, they were so captivated with Jesus, they were going to him. Who was going to be the fulfillment of that Passover. The sacrificial lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. That was going to be Jesus, right? He was going to give, transform that whole concept. Moving it from something historical that had to do with Moses and his deliverance. To the deliverance that Jesus was going to provide as a lamb that was slain. His blood was going to be the blood that would, when the death angel passed over, would provide life for us. You remember the story. They slayed the lamb. They put the blood on the doorpost. The death angel came in. And those who were covered in the blood had life. Could be that this is a foreshadowing of what he's going to present. Well, when Jesus looked up then and he saw this crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, poor Philip, he got to be, that's what you get for sitting at the front of the class, you know. Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him. What's he testing? He's testing his faith. For he already knew what he had in mind, what was in his mind. He knew what he's going to do, okay? He had it in mind. All right. Jesus was testing what? Their faith. It usually starts out like this and then it grows and grows and grows. It starts out like a mustard seed. And, you know, fortunately for us, he says a grain of mustard seed's enough. If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you're going to be able to remove mountains. I think there's going to be a lot of people in heaven that have the faith of a grain of mustard seed. God is just that good. But the idea is that you want faith to grow. How does faith grow? Faith grows with understanding, with knowledge, and with insight. Now get this, into the person of Jesus Christ and God. That is the object of our faith. Now hang with me on this, okay? Everything the disciples had experienced up to that point and the teaching that Jesus had shared up to that point should have been enlarging their faith. This object of their faith, this belief that was centered on the Lord Jesus Christ, and this continual revelation that he was giving should have brought them to a place of greater faith. Faith has to have an object. Uh, I have faith that this chair is going to hold me up. The object of my faith is this chair. When I get in it, I'm acting upon that, that faith and it's, I, it's holding me up. I have, I have faith in my automobile that it will get me home when I'm done with this, these meetings this morning, right? Faith is in an object. And the object of our faith, whenever it comes to the Bible, has to be the Lord, Jesus Christ. And so... Now, I look at it and I say, hmm, the object of my faith is Jesus Christ. How am I going to get into heaven? The object of my faith is Jesus Christ. Just like the car is going to get me home, I'm putting everything on Jesus to get me into that eternal place. And the more that my idea of Jesus grows, 
the more faith that I'm, a- I'm able to put into him. If I do not see him as a healer, I will never come to him for healing. If I do not see him as a provider, I will never look to him for provision. If I don't see him as my salvation, I will never make him the object of my faith to trust for salvation, for provision for healing do you see what i'm saying so if your jesus is this big your faith can only be that big if your jesus is the one that is sitting at the right hand of the heavenly father open it and read it in revelations one if that's your jesus wow that's all i can say wow but we never would have a wrong view of jesus that would make our faith small our life minimal, would we? Surely we're smarter than these people as we live on this side of the cross. It's so important that we develop this concept to let Jesus be who Jesus is or we will never be able to experience or even have what he wants us to have. If you don't see him as the provider of salvation the car the instrument that's going to bring you into eternal glory you'll trust something else and you won't get there you'll trust your works and you'll show up saying i'm a really good person and you've trusted you to get you into heaven excuse me if i want something else you know well i'm a church member and you know i'm I'm affiliated with this religious institution you're trusting an institution to provide something for you it can't Well, my grandfather was a preacher. Well, your grandfather's a preacher. You're not going to get you into heaven. I actually talked to a guy one time who told me, he said, I made a deal with God. I'm going to go to hell, but he's going to save my family. I said, what kind of deal is that? You can't work that deal out. That deal's not in this book. You made a deal all right, but I think your deal was with the devil and your whole family's going to go to hell if that's your deal, you know. Anyway, I didn't say it quite that abruptly. What do you trust in for salvation? Back to the question here. Jesus is testing their faith. Was it growing? Water into wine. What did they learn here? Back at the water into wine. There was a need in that moment. And amazingly, Jesus had met that need in terms of quality. It was the best wine that night. I don't think there's any any finer wine made ever since then. And in terms of quantity, it was plenty. It was enough. Filled every water pot they could find. It was enough. Did they learn anything from that? It was supernatural in the sense that the elements that it was made from was insufficient to produce, insufficient to produce the desirable results. For I I know of all kinds of wine. And I'm I'm not a drinker, so maybe I'm wrong here, but honey. Honey wine, the mead, you know, you got all the way down to watermelon wine, right? I mean, but have you ever heard of water wine? It's insufficient. It doesn't work. Am I missing something? You're laughing. Is there such a thing as water wine? Somebody know? (laughs) No, no such thing. But that's what Jesus did. Jesus took the water and he turned it into wine. That's a miracle, folks. All right, what did you learn from that? Jesus had in mind to feed these people. He discloses that to the disciples. Specifically, Philip gets called on the carpet. What do you do? 
When the situation in front of you and the mind of God in a situation is a particular thing and you, you don't see any way possible. Philip had the, the D minus answer here. Eight months of wages will not buy enough bread for each one to have a little bite. That's the throw your hands up, this is impossible answer. There's another answer, though, that could be offered. And that's the answer that Andrew gave. Where he had been in a situation and learned something about faith where now he was looking at the resources available and he was at least offering those up to God to do what he knew he was going to do. Because if he said he was going to feed them, he figured he was going to somehow. And so Andrew responds with this. Here is a boy with five barley loaves and two small fish. Ah, but what are they among so many? It's like, oh, Andrew, you're A plus, and now you went to C, right? Faith. Is it growing? Well, it was for Andrew, wasn't it? Maybe not Philip yet. Mm, you know, they're run out of water. They run out of wine. I guess we're... Yeah, here's some water over here, Jesus. Can you do something with that? Never even occurred to him to take what he'd learned there about what Jesus could do in the way of provision, in the way of quality and quantity of provision, which we're going to see here, aren't we? Is this not a picture of our salvation? Mankind woefully lacking in resources or ability to secure Really what we needed most. Life. Age life. Eternal life. Fellowship with God. That's where this comes from. And because of our sin and this broken relationship we have with God. We're in a mess. Woefully lacking in resources. To be able to get back to that place of blessing. There's a sovereign God who takes initiative. And he sends his son into this world to take on human flesh. And to bring the word of God down to us. And to die on Mount Calvary and provide a way so that the justice of God can be satisfied and the mercy of God can be extended to you and to I. And people refuse to come to Mount Calvary. The lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. They stand as a jury and convict the innocent. And lose it all. This is where you end up. When the object of your faith is Jesus Christ. You end up with life. And life abundant. And life eternal. You end up right in the middle. Of God's incredible working in the world. And the resources that you have. You joyfully want to always present. To the heavenly father. Knowing that you'll be right in the middle. Of the mighty works of God. They should have learned. Are they learning now? They're learning more. Their faith is growing. And when they had all had enough to eat, his disciples said, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and they filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over uh, by those that had eaten. They ate all they wanted. They got full and there are 12 baskets left over. Again, the provision is enough, isn't it? It covers... Every follower that was there that day. And there were 12 baskets left over. 12. A lot of different scholars. Different speculations on the significance of that 12. I'm kind of a simple guy. So I keep it simple. 
Somewhere along the line, I learned from seminary, college, wherever, I picked up the idea that uh, 12 is the number for completeness. Looking at it in Revelations, I see it that way. There are other things that people try to put with it too, but always 12 is the number of completeness. Um, 12 tribes of Israel, that's enough, makes up a nation. 12 disciples, okay, the class is closed. That's what we need. 12 gates to the new Jerusalem in heaven, and that's all we need. God's salvation to mankind is not short. It's complete. When God does a work, it's complete. It's enough for everyone. Now follow that through. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The reply from heaven is never going to be, sorry, ran out of grace. You get to go to hell. Should have been here yesterday while the cell was on. It's a 12, people. It's complete. What Jesus did on Mount Calvary was absolutely enough to cover everybody. It's there. And I've heard people say, well, I've been such a terrible person. There's no way God can save me. His grace is not short. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Salvation gets a 12 in terms of its quality and in terms of its quantity. It is enough and it is complete. His mercies are new every morning. My favorite verse from Lamentations, uh, the third chapter. He's rich in grace, the psalmist tells us. He's got enough for you. I think it's significant here that he said, let nothing be wasted. Do we ever waste the grace of God? By not receiving it? The Bible teaches me that men will love darkness more than light. And the ones who love darkness more than light, they will not come to the Father to receive his saving grace. And the Bible says the road is narrow that leads to life and few there be that find it. Wasted grace. Don't waste anything, he says. Don't waste it. Well, after the people saw this miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet, the prophet. We talked about Moses. This is the prophet coming to the world. Jesus, now look at this. Knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, make him king by force, withdrew to a mountain by himself. These people had a science faith. They had a messed up faith. They had a wrong idea of <coughs> who the Messiah was going to be. They're, they're not looking at what... John, what Jesus was trying to unfold. And, and actually, John, as he records it, does an amazing job of, of laying it out for us. They had missed the person of Jesus. And they were trying to make him into something that he was not. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. He didn't come to be the deliverer setting up a kingship like David or drawing people out of Egypt and putting them into a promised land. 
not in an earthly sense. His kingdom was totally and completely different. His kingdom was something that took up residence in the heart of man. But if you don't let Jesus be who Jesus is, then you're trying to push him to be something that he's not. And you have a relationship with a person that he's not. And you're expecting from him things that he is never going to do. And so in the end, do you really even know Jesus at all? No, what you know are your preconceived ideas, thoughts that you have contrived somewhere in the world or from yourself that are totally wrong and you miss Jesus completely. Listen, there are people that you know and I know that don't know us at all. Right? And they expect behavior from me that's never going to happen. And they expect behavior from you that's never going to happen. You don't know what I'm talking about? Yes, you do. You've had this conversation with your wife. I am never going to be that person, right? You just need to figure it out. Your expectations are never going to happen because that's not who I am, right? I'm the only one that's ever had this conversation with their wife. We do the same thing with God. Telling him who we want him to be and what we need him to be instead of letting him be who he is. And when we do, we will find that he will bless our socks off. And the kingdom that he wants to build is in the hearts of men who will love him and make him Lord of their life. Who's your Jesus? Do you love him? Have you asked him into your heart to be your Lord and Savior? Get into this book. Let your understanding of him grow so that your faith can grow and so that your life can be more abundant. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. For John, your faithful servant who recorded it that we might catch a clue and have life. The more I really see of the Savior that you truly are and not the one I want you to be, I'm never disappointed. It seems easy to let go of those preconceived ideas, Lord, because they're so self-motivated and so small and shallow. And I wonder sometimes, Lord, how I could hold on to them at all. And the bigger you get, the more in awe I am, the more joy-filled I am, the more peace I have, the more trust and the more faith that I am able to put in you, knowing that you do not lie and that you are who you say you are and you will do what you said you will do and your promises are secure. So I have an object of my faith, a vehicle that I'm trusting for my salvation, and that is you, Lord. And I will not be disappointed. And I thank you for the peace that that brings in my life. And Lord, if there's anyone that doesn't have that, that's listening anywhere today, I pray, Lord, 
that they would let you be God in their lives, open their heart to you, and love you as the Savior you are. For Jesus' sake, that your kingdom come, your will would be done in our lives as it is in heaven, Lord. We love you. Amen.